90.3 FM in Montreal and on www.ckut.ca on the World Wide Web. News, interviews, and music featuring the voices of prisoners, their allies, and supporters. Tune into the Prison Radio Show on the fourth Friday of every month between 11 a.m. and noon, and every second Thursday of the month between 5 and 6 p.m. To get involved in Prison Radio, or if you need to access past programs, email prison at ckut.ca. Yes, rehabilitation. I wonder if you know what the word means. Do you? It comes from the Latin root habilis. The definition is to invest again with dignity. You consider that part of your job hobby to give a man back the dignity he once had? Your only interest is in how he behaves. You'll conform to our ideas of how you should behave. I am not a number. I am a free man. You were a number. You weren't a man. You want to be a human. I wasn't Jim Crow. And hell, I was number 586. Why do you do a warder's job? It's a good job. Responsible job. Uh, officers like myself trying to... Scum. We're only enforcing the law. Oh. The law. The law. When they hang my husband, is that just... (laughs) You're listening to the Prison Radio Show. My name is Virginia, and this is Eugene, and we're your hosts for today's show. Today we'll be airing a talk given by Jackie Wang at McGill University on April 4th of this year. Jackie is the author of the book Carceral Capitalism. But first up, we're going to share some news. The Southern Poverty Law Center filed a class action lawsuit recently alleging that Florida's use of solitary confinement constitutes a violation of the Eighth Amendment, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and the Rehabilitation Act. About 10,000 people, or 10% of those held in Florida prisons, currently live in solitary, which is double the national average. Admire Harvard, who is a transgender woman and named plaintiff in the lawsuit, was first sentenced to 60 days in solitary when she was 18 years old with bipolar disorder after staff accused her of lying in order to receive more food. Harvard's 60-day sentence turned into 10 years in solitary confinement, which has caused her to suffer from depression, anxiety, auditory hallucinations, and attempt suicide several times. The lawsuit claims the Florida Department of Corrections is aware of the harmful psychological and medical effects of isolation, but has failed to prevent them. The Vanderbilt Journal of Entertainment and Technology Law published an, an article exploring the possibilities of developing new evidence proving the harmful effects of solitary confinement on the brain through neuroscience and artificial intelligence, AI research. While evidence of this mental health damage of isolation has been used to make the case against solitary, the article argues a need for more systematic and precise evidence in order to prove the widespread impact of solitary to courts and policymakers. The article points to a progressive AI system called Helios that can act as a self-learning system to aid incarcerated people in gathering evidence and documenting effects of solitary confinement on their health. A combination of traditional evidence and uncharted neuroscience and AI evidence, the article argues, could tip the scales against solitary confinement and end the practice. The city reported that Rikers Island has, quote, quietly reopened its women's punitive segregation unit after the Department of Corrections had closed the unit to investigate the death of transgender woman Laylene Polanco last month. Eight women have been transferred back into the unit as punishment for infractions, though jail staff had originally vacated the unit in acknowledgement of, quote, the potential negative impact of solitary. Polanco died on her ninth day of a 20-day sentence in in the solitary confinement unit. 
Polenko's sister said, quote, it shouldn't be open. We still have no answers as to what happened to my sister in that box. Advocates and lawmakers have been calling for heightened restrictions on the use of solitary since Polenko's death, including a review of the use of isolation and cutting the maximum consecutive sentence in half from the current 30-day limit to 15 days. But Mayor Bill de Blasio is opposed to further restrictions on solitary. Mother Jones is reporting that ICE has opened three new immigration jails in the Deep South as part of an effort to circumvent a congressional limit on number of people in U.S. immigration detention. Among them is Adam is the Adams County Correctional Center, a Mississippi prison operated by Core Civic, a for-profit prison corporation. That center has been plagued by reports of inadequate med- medical care, staff mistreatment, and rotten food and was home to a prison riot in 2012 that left a guard dead. ICE is currently holding some 54,000 people in its jails, an all-time high and far more than a target of 40,000 people sent by Congress. Eddie Africa, a member of the Move 9, was released from a Pennsylvania prison Friday after spending 40 years behind bars. Eddie Africa was convicted, along with eight others, in the 1978 killing of police officer James Ramp. The nine were arrested following a Philadelphia police raid on the House of Move, a radical anti-police brutality and largely African-American organization. His release follows that of Janine Phillips Africa and Janet Holloway Africa last year. Husband and wife Mike Africa Sr. and Debbie Africa were both released last year. Two members of the group remained behind bars. Next up, we'll hear a talk by Jackie Wang that happened in April of this year at McGill University. Jackie is an essayist, poet, filmmaker, community activist, and during her free time, a PhD student in history. And uh, so basically, we're Stasis, and uh, it's really a pleasure to uh, host this event with uh, Jackie and all of you. And um, Stasis yeah. is an, it's an inquiry group. En français, on dit para universitaire, so we're like outside the university. And one of our main goal is to uh, investigate uh, contemporary political issues, and to and we do this uh, through public event, but also through more private uh, gatherings. And um, one of our main goal is to uh, make connections between. Um, the university and uh, activist networks in order to um, to create discussions on uh, contemporary uh, issues and uh, perhaps to find some solution or at least to some ideas to, to think with, to think our struggles with. And uh, in the past we've organized similar events and you can check out our, uh, our Facebook page that stays post mostly in French but Sometimes in English also, and um, we have a we have a website where our uh, our events are uh, are are, uh, are available in the form of in the podcast form. So uh, you're welcome to uh, check out uh, Jackie's recording afterwards also on our website. And uh, thanks again for coming. We thought inviting Jackie was uh, very very important in in this time of. Uh, well, in these times in Quebec, because of all the in Canada, because of all the issues regarding uh, migration and, and notably the the construction of a pr- prison for uh, for uh, so-called illegal migrants, and uh, there are lots of uh, struggles happening in Montreal around this issue, and uh, we thought it was a nice circle uh, with what's happening in the in the U.S. as well. So, Jackie, please. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> 
Tonight, I hope to offer an analysis of carceral power that focuses on the axis of time and the weaponization of time as an instrument of social control. When comparing the Southern US convict lease system to contemporary mass incarceration, historian Alex Lichtenstein writes that prison life in the late 19th century and early 20th century was characterized by hard labor while modern prison life is best described as hard time. While the use of temporal punishment may appear to be more humane than physical punishment, this regime of control is just as cruel insofar as it is a total attack on the subjectivity and psyche of the prisoner. Furthermore, the supplanting of a corporeal regime of punishment with a temporal one that it, um, enables prisons to maintain their moral legitimacy because of the damage done by temporal punishment is not legible in our current framework for understanding harm and pain. This is partly due to the fact that no visible wound is left on the body of the prisoner when time is used as an instrument of torture. Pain is usually defined as physical pain, even though emotional, social, and psychic pain shares the same neural circuitry as bodily pain. One, solitary confinement as detemporalization. Solitary confinement as a punitive carceral practice has its roots in a late 18th century penal ideology first developed by Quakers which eventually became known as the Pennsylvania system. Although the use of solitary confinement never completely vanished from the American prison landscape, after the failure of the Pennsylvania system experiments in the 19th century, solitary confinement was a marginal carceral practice until it was revived beginning in the 1970s with the rise of supermax prisons and the creation of control units and security housing units or shoes. Um, so the images um, up here are of Eastern State Penitentiary. So Eastern State was open in 1829. And you can see here that it had a radial design, which is, um, shares some um, similar characteristics to the panopticon, which um, you know Foucault famously writes about in Discipline and Punish. But you can see that in the, the cent center um, of the prison, there's a watchtower, and then there's spokes radiating off the center. And all, all alongside the spokes are cells that um, were meant to house prisoners um, in isolation. And so you can see here that each cell had a skylight at the top, which was supposed to represent the eye of God. So the idea was that the, the prisoner in solitary confinement um, would internalize the feeling of, 
of being watched by a higher power, um, and this was supposed to um, lead the prisoner to repent. Um, but this was actually, even though this architectural design was exported around the world, it was considered a failed experiment because um, it was very, very expensive to build and it, it drove people crazy. Only them in isolation, they had no social contact with anyone else. Um, black, native, and Puerto Rican militants um, in the 70s, as well as white leftists, have argued that the revival of solitary confinement practices was tied to the deliberate weaponization of isolation as an attempt to psychically break and punish political prisoners through a process that aimed to dismantle their personalities and worldviews. Militant women held at the Lexington Control Unit in Kentucky argued that the state was carrying out psychological experimentation on them that amounted to torture and sought to neutralize them. Although this carceral practice was initially used on political prisoners, it has become a normalized feature of the US's criminal legal system even though the U.S. falsely claims that solitary confinement is not practiced in its prisons. Solitary confinement may appear to be a practice primarily aimed at the spatial regulation of prisoners. However, it is inextricably linked to the axis of time. While solitary confinement denies prisoners access to all embodied modes of relationality by physically removing prisoners from their social context. It also aims to distort the prisoner's perception of time and, uh, and undermine their sense of time altogether. Solitary confinement robs people of their temporal agency by imposing a rigid carceral time that is punctuated by meals, shower time, and, if allowed at all, recreation time. In written accounts of solitary confinement, prisoners frequently write about losing all sense of time, hallucinating, losing the ability to think a complete thought or formulate a complete sentence, getting stuck in thought loops, and experiencing detemporalization and depersonalization. In her phenomenological analysis of solitary confinement, Lisa Gunther writes, quote, there is a great risk for the prisoner in prolonged solitary confinement to get stuck in a moment that goes nowhere, closed into a circular repetition of the same, end quote. Furthermore, solitary confinement can also undermine a subject's capacity to use language or to sequentialize in words. Ulrika Meinhof, the Red Army faction militant who was held in a dead wing, um, which is an entire prison wing devoid of all other persons, 
offered this description of solitary. Quote, sentences, grammar, syntax, no longer controllable. When you're writing two lines at the end of the second, you cannot remember how the first one began. A complete inability to communicate. Visits leave no impression. Half an hour later, you can only reconstruct mechanically whether the visit happened today or last week." End quote. In Meinhof's account, the subject who experiences time has collapsed. The distinction between days and weeks no longer holds. In supermax prisons, where prisoners are often held in windowless cells, and are subjected to artificial light 24 hours a day. Prisoners are forcibly detached from their diurnal rhythms and often lose track of the days. While working for the LGBTQ prison abolitionist organization Black and Pink, prisoners in solitary requested that we include a calendar in our <coughs> newspaper so that they could have a way of keeping track of the passing of days. Despite the imposition of this brutal carceral temporality, prisoners have developed strategies to control experience and mark the passing of time, which are strategies that defend against detemporalization. Gunther writes, quote, most prisoners will tell you that in order to do the time, that in order to do the time rather than allowing the time to do you, one needs to establish a daily schedule, end quote. Thus, time is a terrain of struggle, a field that is constantly negotiated in a study of how older women in prison negotiate and experience time, as Rini Wahidin and Shirley Tate write, quote, the women in the study interact with time by making time digestible, ticking off months, weeks, and even days. It was found that the women built their own subjective clock in order to protect themselves from the terror of interminable prison time, end quote. Long-term prisoners may try to ward off the inscription of time on the body by exercising and regulating food intake. Two, mass incarceration's sentencing regime. In dissonance in time, unmaking and re remapping of blackness, Damien M. Sojourner writes, quote, the annals of late 20th century and early 21st century judicial records provide evidence of the imposition of time. The common sense connections between time and incarceration are evident in how time is invoked as a possessive action. Just put your head down and do your time. How much time did you get? Will I get credit for time served? Where do I have to do my time? The application of time as a disciplinary mechanism of power has been key to the corralling of black freedom, end quote. 
Not only have sentences gotten longer in the era of mass incarceration, there has been a qualitative shift in how prisoners are allowed to spend their time. The lock them up and throw away the key approach that superseded the rehabilitative model is characterized by the imposition of idleness. Yet hard time is not equally distributed. Numerous studies have shown that in the US, black people are given longer sentences than white people. Even within the black population, skin tone is correlated to sentence length. A study of skin tone and sentence length among black women found that the, quote, relationship between skin tone and prison time for black women were consistent with those of earlier studies focusing on the experiences of black men. Controlling for several factors, black women perceived as having lighter skin, received less of a prison sentence, and served less time behind bars, end quote. Thus, the temporality of punishment itself is racialized. Having dark skin increases the distance between the prisoner and the horizon that marks the end of the sentence. Although time is intangible, it becomes directly inscribed on the racialized body. Three. Predictive policing and invocations of the future. With the explosion of data science and the increasing deployment of predictive policing software, we are now witnessing a transformation in the temporality of policing. Policing is no longer primarily aimed at effectively responding to crime, but to anticipating and preventing it. This anticipatory element of policing has always been present, but until recently, the judgment of the police officer was considered superior to that of machines. As self-learning AI systems are refined and our faith in machines and predictive analytics increases, we are relinquishing more and more decision-making power to algorithms. What are the chances a parolee will be a recidivist? Where should police patrol? Whom should the police be monitoring? Increasingly, these decisions are being made algorithmically, sometimes with software that analyzes police data to make such predictions. But predictions are much more about constructing the future through the present management of subjects categorized as threats or risks. Thus, predictions do much more than present us with a probable outcome. They enact the future. The transformation of the temporality of policing with the advent of predictive policing turns the unknowability of the future into a problem that justifies the state's management of the future through the technical overcoming of uncertainty. In the age of big data, 
uncertainty is presented as an information problem that can be overcome with comprehensive data collection, statistical analysis that can identify patterns and relationships, and algorithms that can determine future outcomes by analyzing past outcomes. Predictive policing promises to remove the existential terror of not knowing what is going to happen by using data to deliver accurate knowledge about where and when crime will occur. Data installs itself as a solution to the problem of uncertainty by claiming to achieve total awareness and overcome human analytical limitations. Towards the end of 2018, tech philosopher Nick Bostrom published a working paper titled The Vulnerable World Hypothesis, in which he calls for the creation of a high-tech panopticon consisting of the establishment continuous real-time surveillance of every living person on the boat. You might be familiar with uh, Bostrom's work, but he's kind of taken a very, very, um, I mean, I always thought he was a little bit paranoid, but he's taken a very dark turn in his recent work. And I'm, I, it's so excessive um, what he's proposing that I almost find it hard to believe that he's not trolling us, but apparently he's being sincere. So Bostrom, um, best known for his warnings about the dangers of AI in his book, Superintelligence, as well as his influence on tech, tech bigwigs such as Bill Gates and Elon Musk, now believes that the risk of apocalypse that accompanies technological development is so high that it warrants turning the planet into a giant prison managed by those who govern. His probabilistic assertions about the inevitability of such an apocalypse are based on a thought experiment. If the urn of creativity, which represents technological development, produces both white and black balls, White represents inventions that benefit humanity. Black represents inventions that can destroy it. It is only a matter of time before we pull a black ball from the urn. Um, and he argues that as technology develops, the means of mass destruction, such as DIY biohacking, becomes increasingly accessible and the likelihood that someone will exercise this destructive potential increases to the point where self-destruction eventually becomes essentially inevitable. According to Bostrom, the only way to militate against such an outcome is to exit the default, quote, semi-anarchic conditions by creating a preventive regime of high-tech social control. Quote, everyone is fitted with a freedom tag, a secret to the more I know. I know, this is what I like. Is he, I mean, it's like so comical, all of the language everything. So everyone is fitted with a freedom tag, a secret to the more limited wearable surveillance devices familiar today, 
such as the ankle tag used in several countries as a prison alternative, the body cams worn by many police officers, the pocket trackers and wristbands that some parents use to keep track of their children, and of course, the ubiquitous cell phone. The freedom tag is a slightly more advanced application appliance. I mean, and this is another comical thing about it is he actually goes into the, the he does like a cross benefit analysis is like, Civilizational annihilation costs more than making everyone wear the freedom tag, is what he says. So the freedom tag is a slightly more advanced appliance worn around the neck and bedecked with multi-directional cameras and microphones. Encrypted video and audio is continuously uploaded from the device to the cloud and machine interpreted in real time. AI algorithms classify the activities of the wearers, his hand movements, nearby objects, and other situational cues. If suspicious activity is detected, the feed is relayed to one of several Patriot monitoring stations. These are vast office complexes staffed 24-7. There, a freedom officer reviews the video feed on several screens and listens to the audio in headphones. The freedom officer can also dispatch an inspector, a police rapid response unit, or a drone to investigate further. In the small fraction of cases where the wearer refuses to desist from the prescribed activity after repeated warnings, an arrest may be made or other suitable penalties imposed. Citizens are not permitted to remove the freedom tag, except when they are environments that have been outfitted with adequate external sensors." End quote. By calling the surveillance apparatus a freedom tag, the all-encompassing police state is recast as the ultimate guarantor of humanity's collective freedom. It is hard not to read his phraseology as self-parody that harkens back to the freedom fries idioms of the Bush era, but Bostrom is sincere in his proposal. He estimates that the ubiquitous system of surveillance would cost 140 USD a year per person which would amount to less than 1% of the world's annual GDP. So not very much when compared um, to the cost of civilizational apocalypse. Um, if there's not enough, yeah, 140 bucks a year, guys. Let's get behind it. Um, if there's not enough political will or state capacity to implement such a system, another measure that could be attempted in the absence of a fully universal monitoring system might include, quote, adopting a policy of preemptive incarceration, end quote. Bostrom's Freedom Tag proposal is hardly surprising when we can consider how debates about e-carceration are playing out in the domain of prison reform. 
Um, even some prison abolitionists have argued that the use of e-carceration, such as GPS ankle monitoring shackles, is a humane alternative to confinement. What Bostrom's proposal represents is merely a generalization of the same preemptive te techniques of managing risk. What is unique about Bostrom's proposal is his amplification of the stakes. The preservation of civilization itself depends on the absolute concentration of power and the creation of a unipolar world. Never mind the risk of concentrating the power to surveil the planet in the hands of a global state. The danger in Bostrom's scenario is the plebs, it is hypothetical rogue actors who would have no scruples about wiping out society, extremists, the mentally ill, and antisocial belligerents. Not the capitalists and technocrats who actually control the means of civilizational annihilation. In the high-tech panopticon, deviance itself must be neutralized. For anyone who does not possess a normative identity, worldview, or temperament is a potential threat, insofar as they might not be invested in the preservation of the society that excludes them. The predictive regime has as its ultimate aim the elimination of difference, for otherness is seen as inherently risky. But paranoia feeds on itself. It is self-fulfilling. Eventually, paranoia can attach itself to any object and poison every area of social life. In the vulnerable world imagined by Bostrom, every living, breathing person on the planet is a potential risk. Paranoia is the underside of power, and power is self-preserving. With technological development comes the consolidation of power, but also, or so the te uh, paranoid tech ethicists claim, the multipli multiplication of risks and threats. Thus, doomsayers like Bostrom have constructed a teleological view of technology that serves as the justification for techno-fascism. <laughs> Left unchecked, this ideology would justify turning the world into a prison. Four, time maroons and other temporal renegades. Damien M. Sojourner writes, quote, Black radical time is not something that is employed to be inflicted upon people, end quote. In the post-industrial, post-apocalyptic urban cityscape of Philadelphia, a collective of black artists, writers, and musicians are dreaming up new temporal modes and practices of being in the world that draw from quantum physics, African cosmologies, Afrofuturism, and the black radical tradition. The Black Quantum Futurism Collective, or BQF, was founded by the lawyer and sci-fi writer Rashida Phillips and musician and poet Moore Mother. 
The collective engages in community memory work that brings people together to unearth and document lost histories of black Philadelphia neighborhoods that are in the process of being gentrified. The goal of BQF is to develop, quote, a new approach to living and experiencing reality by, the, by way of the ma manipulation of space-time in order to see into possible futures and or collapse space-time into a desired future in order to bring about that future's reality, end quote. So I first encountered BQF when I saw more mother perform at a queer dance party fundraiser in Philadelphia. During an event, more mother performed a hybrid set consisting of spoken words and shrieking over loud, ominous electronic sounds. The lyrics revolved around the themes of grief, anger, premature death, anti-black violence, and ghosts. What Moore Mother was doing was a kind of time sorcery that sought to bring the past in contact with the present and the future, to merge them through sounds that sought to, quote, sing the graves open, end quote. Embedded in BQF's aesthetic and political practice is a critique of Western notions of time the conceptualize of time as linear and organized around the discrete categories of past, present, and future. For BQF, contemporary notions of time are intimately tied to the entwined histories of capitalism and slavery. When describing a BQF Community Futures Lab workshop, Art in America critic Michael McCain writes, quote, Phillips described how European Judeo-Christian traditions experienced time as an inevitable flow towards a divinely ordained future. She continued to explain how capitalism incorporated this future-oriented linearity into labor and production as it began to regulate time more precisely through mechanical clocks, calendars, and bells. This was assimilated into slavery in the Americas as masters moved from nature-based timekeeping to mechanical clock time. Slave owners wrote books detailing how many hours a slave should work to achieve the most profit and how to maximize efficiency <coughs> using clock-based schedules enforced by physical punishments. With emancipation, slavery came to an end but the powerful rhythms and logic of mechanical time remain." End quote. To counter the rigid temporalities that originated in capitalism and slavery, BQF has created a practice of time marinage, where the rules of clock time are subverted by practices that imaginatively summon ancestors, conjure ghosts, project practitioners into the future, and amalgamate the past, present, and future in order to create new political openings. These time renegades demonstrate 
that becoming ungovernable by resisting the imposition of violent temporalities is a cornerstone of black freedom. Five, the politics of dreaming. Everywhere I look, I see sleepwalkers under the spell of the prison and the imposition of carceral time. The prison is a problem for thought that can only be unthought using a mode of thinking that does not capitulate to the realism of the present. What counter spells are powerful enough to break the prison stranglehold on our imaginations? But the spell is never total. The intensification of the desire for life undermines the prison's capacity to structure our mental lives. Imagination is excess, is that which can never be contained by the prison, that which will always exceed it. What night endeavors must we embrace to enter the hidden frequency, that special vibration the one Sun Ra believed would set us free. When dream becomes a hammer, we summon to shatter the realism of the prison. Asada Shakur, a black revolutionary who lives in exile in Cuba, writes, quote, dreams and reality are opposites. Action synthesizes them, end quote. Before Asada was liberated from prison, her grandmother and family came to visit her, bearing a dream. You're coming home soon, her grandmother said. I don't know when it will be, but you're coming home. You're getting out of here. It won't be too long, though. She went on, I dreamed we were in our old house in Jamaica. I was dressing you, putting your clothes on. Asada's grandmother was known for her prophetic dreams. They came when they were needed, but it was ultimately the responsibility of the recipients of the visions to make them real, not only by believing in the veracity of the prophecies, but by acting so as to give them flesh. When Asada returned to her cell, she could not help but dance and sing. She writes, no amount of scientific rational thinking could diminish the high that I felt. A tingly, giddy excitement had caught hold of me. I had gotten drunk on my family's arrogant, carefree optimism. I literally danced in my cell singing, Feet don't fail me now. I sang the feet part real low, so I guess the guards must have thought I was bugging out, stomping around my cage singing feet, feet. When we act in accordance with the prophetic dream, the dream comes to directly constitute reality. Six, the rhythm of revolt. Sometimes I don't know what to tell you or how to end. For some time I have been thinking about how to convey the message of police and prison abolition. 
But I know that as a poet, it is not my job to win you over with a persuasive argument, but to impart to you a vibrational experience that is capable of awakening your desire for another world. A few years ago, I saw the Black Arts Movement poet and activist Sonia Sanchez speak. I was moved by the way she would pause whenever she experienced vertigo and would spontaneously start singing as a way to refine her rhythm after nearly passing out. In a haiku, Sonia writes, without your residential breath, I lose my timing. Our bodies are not closed loops. We hold each other and keep each other in time by marching, singing, embracing, breathing. We synchronize our tempo so we can find a rhythm through which the urge to live can be expressed collectively. And in this way, we set the world in motion. In this way, poets become the timekeepers of the revolution. Seven, planting the dream. In Freedom Dreams, the Black Radical Imagination, Robin D.G. Kelly writes, quote, what shall we build on the ashes of a nightmare? I won't propose much more since the design and realization of such a space ought to be the product of a collective imagination shaped and reshaped by the very process of turning rubble and memory into the seeds of a new society." End quote. I see our shadow in the trees, watching the wheel unfold. I see our one shadow on the wall. I see your restless hand in the spider's thread. I am the ice cave and there is water, deep blue and white, a light at the bottom. I am equal to my love for you. Lay let down your hair, willow in the moonlight. The river lulls us into the dream. Nightmares jostle branches in our eyes. I long for the world that is before you, the plate you set on the slate of tomorrow. Your fingers flutter to feel for the grass between the valley where one foot follows the other into the flaming creek. We don't know what name to give the throbbing stone perched atop the hill. From here, I see for you. Look at what I lost when you were lost, and I could only hear the call of the stones. A body returned, floats down the river dressed in candles. I send you the secret while you are asleep. The nights you carried in the length of a strand of hair. The unforgiving flash of his teeth. I stroke your cheek to unlock your jaw. 
and release the rose you carry in your mouth. Your tongue is raw and your mouth is filling with blood. Dear, dear, forgive us for having fallen so far from where you planted the seed at the bottom of the sea, waiting for the body to ride the stream back to where the rubble gave birth to the first dream. The egg cracks, night wanders seaward, barefoot in her evening slip, and by this sadness you are shown the path to the holding sea, a trail burned by a herd of somnambulant turtles who folded one by one in their grief until a single remained to carry the breath of time back to the seed. Thank you. That was a talk by Jackie Wang, author of the book Carceral Capitalism. Jackie's writing is available in all kinds of places on the internet, so you should go check it out. The time is presently 5.49, and you're listening to The Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable, and online at www.ckut.ca. And here is an ad. Dragonroot Radio is a feminist media collective that aims to produce anti-oppressive media with a gender justice perspective. We've been bringing you equity-powered media for the last seven years on the Tuesday morning after, and now we're moving to a new programming time. Starting July 29, every second and fourth Monday, 7 to 8 p.m. on CKUT 90.3 FM. Tune in for interviews with community activists, artists, panel discussions, and more. This Sunday, July 14th, there will be a benefit show held to help with legal funds for comrades in Hamilton, Ontario, who took action to defend pride events there against fascists. The show will take place in the courtyard of Dira, which is at 2035 Boulevard Saint-Laurent, from 6 until 10 p.m. The event is pay what you can and no one will be refused for lack of funds. Again, the time is 5.51 and you're listening to The Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM. The audio you heard on today's show and the show itself was recorded and produced on unseated, unseated Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabe, Abenaki, and Mohawk territories. You can check out past episodes of the Prison Radio Show at prisonradioshow.wordpress.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at Prison Radio Show. The show airs twice a month on CKUT. We're on air on the second Thursday of the month at 5 p.m. and the fourth Friday of each month at 11 a.m. Our next show will air on Friday, July 26th at 11 a.m., if you have any questions on anything that you've heard on today's show, or if you wish to be involved in the show, feel free to contact us at prison at ckut.ca. Formerly incarcerated people are encouraged to participate. Folks can also leave a message on our listener comment line at 514-448-4041, extension 2547. If you're in prison, we encourage you to participate in the show in any way possible. Feel free to write to us at The Prison Radio Show or simply write PRS care of CKUT, 3647 University Street, Montreal, Quebec, H3A2B3. And we're going to close out with a song. Uh, the band is called Ledges Blast, and the song is called Up a Killer Hill.